in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. See, good to see all of you guys. This is encouraging after a meeting online for so long or in parks, just fun to see, you know, half of half or a little bit more of our church body back in person. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm the, the pastor here who helped to launch and start Capital City Church. Um, and I'd love to meet you afterward if you're if you're new. So We've read this today. Normally on Palm Sunday, we we do a Palm Sunday message, but there's really only the one or two texts that go with that. So I'd almost feel like I was re-preaching last year's and the in the years before. One of my favorite sermons I ever did here was called Judah and or Judah the Hammer. And so if you want to hear a classic Palm Sunday specific message about Jesus riding in on the donkey and the palms, uh, you can listen to that. I didn't want to redo it necessarily or borrow too much from it. So that's on our our podcast on our you can find it on online. So if you'd like to hear that for a more classic Palm Sunday message you can. But we were really feeling like we missed communion with, with you know, meeting online and at a distance and then meeting in a park and then everyone being worried about COVID, knowing, no one having vaccinations last summer. We, we hadn't done communion in almost nine, 10 months. And so we have been having the Lord's Supper every week during this time, and it's just been so special. So I wanted to do a whole message on something that the church has been misunderstanding and getting wrong about the Lord's Supper for hundreds of years. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34 says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. So I had uh, Abby read that passage. Thanks for doing that. And we'll dive into this story of the Corinthians. So Corinth has problems. They have their campy divisions and their favorite teachers. They have incest. Uh, they are suing one another in court. There's sexual immorality because they're like, hey, you know, the gospel covers all things. So why not just keep going to the temple prostitutes. Why not just keep doing what we were doing before, right? They're eating food sacrificed to idols. And one by one in this really uh, 
messy letter, this dysfunctional community, Paul is addressing one thing after another. It's just such a mess. And then we get to this passage, that somehow they have managed to make the Lord's Supper more harmful than good. I mean, this is, how do you make the Lord's Supper more harmful than good? He says in the following directives, I have no praise for you for your meetings are doing more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. And what it, to some extent, I believe it. Just a little note here. He believes it fully. It's just that the people he's about to chastise are the important, the powerful, the wealthy. They're the people who are hosting the church in their home. So watch as Paul is sort of being a little like queasy. He's trying to challenge and he definitely challenges them straight up. But when you challenge people in a position of authority, sometimes you, you do it a little bit more gently than if you're challenging people who don't have authority. And so he's, he's kind of cushioning his, his critique here. He says, and to some extent, I believe it. He believes it fully, as you'll see as we get into the text, but he is chastising the people who are making the whole thing happen. So he's, he's being careful. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. Now, this is a dig because just a few verses earlier, we didn't read it, but he says, you cannot partake at the Lord's table and the table of demons. And then he says here, when you come together, it's not the Lord's table. It's not the Lord's supper you're eating. And he's telling them, hey, if you're not at the Lord's table, whose table are you at? And he's insinuating that they are engaging almost in an occult practice by ruining the Lord's supper. He says, when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So 2,000 years later, we're like, well, what exactly is the problem? Because we do communion differently now. Society is different. Everything is different. So what exactly is going around or going on? So here's the background. When the Jews shared the Passover, and the Passover is the context for the communion meal, when the Jews shared the Passover, everyone had to be within the walls of Jerusalem. So I don't know the population exactly back then, but just imagine today you have, you have millions of people and they all have to be in one city to celebrate this Passover. And so you have a whole country trying to flood into one city. And so in order to make that happen, you had to get really tight and really dense and really egalitarian just to fit everyone in the room. And people forget that Jesus' supper was like this. They weren't in their own place. So they were traveling into Jerusalem and they found someone who was wealthy enough to have a spare room, an upper room, and they asked if they could use it. And then they smashed 15 or 20 people into this room. And those houses weren't like ours. These houses were maybe 150 to 200 square feet. And you could look this up. So these are small dwellings and they just smash all these people in. So travelers would come in and either go to a relative's house or they would just start knocking on strangers' homes. And they had such a culture of hospitality that strangers would welcome you in to celebrate Passover together. So there's no class, there's no, there's no status, you're, status, you're all smashed in. And uh, when Jesus is having this last supper, you know, foreshadowing the events that would take place 12 hours later on the cross, this was the context, this sort of egalitarian, everyone's in the same space, we're all smashed together, and we're all having a great time celebrating the Passover. And that was the context that Jewish Christians brought to celebrating the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine the first few weeks after Christ died and rose again? There, were no, there was no liturgy. There was no practice. They didn't know. They're like, what, what day do we meet on? So Christians would get together those first few weeks. They're like, well, what do we do? And they'd start telling stories about Jesus, and they would break bread and wine and remember what Jesus did on the cross and in rising again. And that's how it all started. They moved their worship day from Saturday to Sunday, which would be just 
hugely difficult for a, a society of 100% of Jews. But all of this happened in just the, the blink of an eye. So that was the context. Everyone smashed together. It's egalitarian. Everyone loves each other. They welcome strangers in, and we're all the same celebrating the work of the Lord. Not our own supper. We're celebrating what God did through the Passover. But the church at Corinth was made up of Greeks, not Jews. So that's not their background. They're not bringing that to their communion, their Passover meal. They didn't know what that was like, and they had a lot more income inequality. They had a few very wealthy people, and then a lot of people who had very little. So instead of taking that healthy Passover background into their communion sessions, they did what they knew best. And what did they know? What they knew was their Greek pagan worship. People say I say the word pagan funny, pagan, pagan, whatever. Don't be uh, distracted if I say it funny. But they took their pagan Greek idol worship That was the culture they knew. And so they just adapted it to the Lord's Supper, but they kept doing their former former culture sort of took over. So unlike early Jewish Christian worship that ignored class and race, Greek pagan religion was used to heighten. It was actually used to reinforce class differences. What the Greeks were used to was a wealthy person in their villa would host the the Lord's Supper, because if most people lived in 200 square foot homes, you just couldn't possibly have it there. So it'd take a wealthy person to host the church service or the Lord's Supper. And the wealthy got to sit in the important room, which is called a triclinium. Uh, It's a Roman term. And within the view of that room, right next to it was this sort of mass open room. So you had the important room with the important table and the important chairs and everything. And then you had like the, the B team room right next to it. Uh, this reminds me, it's kind of a strange thing, but my mind always thinks of this. I, I backpacked Europe when I was 18. Has anyone gone through Europe, stayed in hostels and stuff like that? Yeah, some, some people. So I backpacked Europe when I was 18 with my brother. He had just graduated college. I had just graduated high school, and we thought that would be a great idea. Anyway, we would go to these hostels, and sometimes we would splurge to be in a room with just us, like two-bed room that we'd pay a little bit more for. But then other times we were trying to save money. So they have like the single hostel rooms, double. Then they also have like a six bed kind of a setup where there's six just random strangers in there. And then they have what we lovingly refer to as the barn. And so there'd be these hostels that basically had a roofed shelter and 50 people, a hundred people would just sleep on the ground with whatever they had. If they had a pad, if they had a sleeping bag, blankets, they would just all set up shop on the floor and at least they weren't getting rained on. And that was the cheapest kind of accommodation you could get. Now, this doesn't exactly relate to this, but I always think of that barn hostel sleeping setting when I think of this communion ceremony. The the wealthy are in the important room and then next door you kind of have like the bottom end room, this sort of barn, this maybe there's a bench against the wall, but it's a completely bare and empty room and the poor would all sort of smash into that spot. Maybe they'd sit against the bench and that's all they'd have. And so, uh, when the church came together to break bread, all the wealthy, important people would be in the one room, and they'd have a lot of food and a lot of wine and all sorts of great stuff. And then the poor, the bond servants, the non-citizens, uh, the opp- various oppressed classes would have to sit on the floor or on the bench against the wall. And the worst thing is, these weren't rooms that were like on separate parts of the villa. They, they openly connected. They just had either support beams that, that were open, but that connected the rooms, or there was massive doorways. So like here the poor are watching the, the rich like drink and eat their fill, and they're just in here on a bench like waiting for whatever teaching or reading or psalm to start. So that's what was going on is this, this crazy inequality in the church while the poor are watching the, while the have-nots, you could say, are watching the haves enjoy this meal. So instead of this Passover, instead of the Lord's Supper, you had a very 
Greek pagan supper and the worst of social reinforcement. The poor showed up and didn't get enough to eat, and the rich stuffed their faces. Now, Paul says here, some of you get drunk. It was, it was unlikely that they were getting drunk. What he means is the, the, the wealthy are eating their fill, and they are drinking their fill, say two or three glasses of wine along with this full meal. It's not that this is some like wasted party. So they're drinking their fill, they're eating their fill, and the, the contrast is that the poor are not eat, they're, they're only getting the bread and the wine, and they're only getting a few sips of wine. So some are having their fill, and some are not. So that's what's going on here. So, so much for being a symbol of the good news of Christ. So see if you can follow the argument here, because the church for hundreds and hundreds of years has not been able to follow this. The church really screwed this one up. As much uh, respect as I have for the Roman Catholic Church in some ways, they really screwed this one up, and it passed over into Protestantism, and we've been carrying this for hundreds of years. So see if you guys can follow this argument, and we'll keep coming back to the points. And uh, yeah, we'll see if we can make sense of it. So he says, part one, the problem, we're going to belabor this a bit because we've gotten this so wrong. So he says, when you come together, you're doing more harm than good. You know, some are eating their own private suppers, some don't have anything. So we've talked about that. And then comes part two, this famous part that Abby read. This is the, I would call it the institution of communion. They're the words that we always hear, but they follow immediately after part one. So first, like our famous communion text comes after the problem. So the problem is you've got the wealthy and you've got the poor and there's all this inequality and you guys are, you know, showing off your wealth in front of the poor. Two, then it's, for I received the Lord, what I also passed to you. And he reads the communion message that's about the same in the Gospels. He says, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is just a, a, a pet interest of mine. When Paul quotes the liturgy of the church, this is fascinating because so many people in the church were illiterate and even just months, days after Jesus died and rose again, they started what you could call a liturgy. They started a process of worship and they formed their own hymns and their own memorized things. Paul is not writing this. He's quoting this. This is the work of the early church. This is not Pauline. This goes back to the very first days of the church that they were saying this stuff because they were repeating the words of Jesus. So I always get goosebumps when Paul starts quoting the liturgy of the early church because like that goes back to the beginning. We're talking like day one, the resurrection happens and they're like, well, how do we celebrate this? And they said this stuff. And then Paul learns it and he spits it back to him. So anyway, I hope you feel like the specialness. This is almost like, it's almost like pre-scripture scripture, right? It's the liturgy before the scripture even got written down. So again, follow the argument. Part one is you guys are really screwing up the differences between the wealthy and the poor here. And part two is remember whose supper this is. And he repeats the whole liturgy. He's like, remember what Jesus said. Remember what we're here to do. So one, you screwed it up. Two, remember whose supper it is. It's not yours it's Christ's. And then we get to part three. So hold on to one and two, and then get to part three. He says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that unworthy is the key word. Whoever drinks uh, the cup or, or eats the bread in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So again, this is what the Roman Catholic Church made a mistake on. And all churches make mistakes. I don't mean to be hard on them. But 
it's like the Bible they were reading in had a page turn after the problem. So there's part one, two, and three of this whole text, right? It's like after part one, their Bible had a page turn and they kind of forgot about it and then really focused in on parts two and three, the institution of communion and the, you better not drink unworthily or it's going to be bad. And so what, what they got to, so they had the institution of communion and then they saw don't drink or eat in an unworthy manner or you're drinking guilt or, or damnation on yourself. And since they'd forgotten part one, they had to figure out what to do with that unworthy word. It's a difficult word. It only appears once in the New Testament. And so they're like, well, what does it mean to drink unworthily? And instead of going back to part one and actually taking the context from the argument Paul is making, they instead thought, well, we've got some ideas for what unworthy means. And they read those ideas, medieval ideas from the 12 and 1300s. They read those into the text and said, well, that's actually what this text means is what we think unworthy means. So what they said is, if you are holding on to an individual or a personal sin, a grave sin, a a, a big sin that's unconfessed to a priest, that's what it means to unworthily take the Lord's Supper. Does this resonate with any of you, if you grew up even Protestant, that this idea is before you take communion, you've got to really search your heart, got to really confess, otherwise you might be drinking damnation on yourself. Like anyone, that's from the Roman Catholic Church, and and it passed over into Protestantism, and it just still kind of lives on, and and people don't really know what to do with it. And so that's what they said, is that you're holding on to this grave sin, and you have not yet confessed it, and that's what it means to unworthily take the Lord's Supper. Now, of course, living with unconfessed sin isn't good, although we believe there's only one mediator between God and man. We don't believe we need to confess to a priest, but we confess to one another, and we confess to God. Anyway, that is not at all what this passage is about. Because ever since they made this teaching, well over a thousand years after Christ, this has afflicted the church ever since. Dozens and dozens of generations of Christians have come to the table of the Lord more terrified than in any other thing they do in the faith. Rather than uh, celebrating what God did, rather than rejoicing and coming boldly before the throne, people come with timidity and they wonder, you know, have I, do, am I drinking damnation on myself because I have these, you know, sins that are, that are in my soul? And this is exactly the opposite spirit Jesus desires for us regarding his table. The Lord's Supper is his, and men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, citizen and bondservant, all kind of squeeze into the same 200 square foot space and take this supper together. There is no partiality with Jesus. Jesus came to bear the iniquity of many and to be numbered among the transgressors. So think of this. He ate, he he sat at table with sinners, with drunkards, with the unclean. He sat at the same table with these people all the time. He took on the form of a lowly servant and washed the feet of his own disciples. Think of this, the, the king of the universe washing the feet of rugged fishermen while a prostitute is next to them, washing his feet with her tears and covering him, anointing him with the oil that she had paid for with a year's worth of wages from the money of prostitution. These are the people that Jesus actually sits at the table with. Okay, so he, it's not that we're not to repent and walk away from our sin, but clearly he is at the table with people who have unrepentant sin. He calls them to the table, then he calls them to repent. To reinforce earthly, social, and class divisions at the table of the Lord is completely unlike the spirit of Christ. He actually welcomes the prostitute and puts his hand out to the religious Pharisee who's like, that woman's a sinner. She's a woman of the city. What is she doing here? 
It's not honoring to the Lord's table to lift up earthly distinctions. To dishonor the poor at the table is to dishonor the body of Christ. As individuals, we miss this. Almost always when they talk about the body of Christ in the, in the New Testament, they're talking about the church, right? The body of Christ is the church. Love one another and show no partiality. We are all equal as sinners saved by grace under the blood of Christ. Eat and drink in any other way, and you'll do so in an unworthy manner. Unworthy not because of what's in your soul and what you're holding on to, but unworthy of the Lord whose supper it actually is. So the unworthy is not about your soul. The unworthy is about the the manner describing the way that we do the Lord's supper. So don't take the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner, in the taking of it, not about your heart necessarily. Now, of course, Jesus commands us to repent and walk away from our sin, but this isn't about us. It's not about you. It's about the church and the partaking together in equality. So throw away whatever fear, whatever timidity you've grown up with, or just a little bit, the ounce left over from whatever, you know, Catholic and then the Reformation that's still in your blood, throw that away. The table is not to be approached with timidity. This passage is not about being consumed with this mortal fear that you have sins that you've forgotten to repent of. Of course, of course you have sins that you have forgotten to repent of, right? I mean, who does not, right? We, of course you have sins that you have forgotten to repent of. Repent of the ones that you can, that you think of, name them, walk away from them. But like Sisyphus, who's a favorite of mine, as you know, you will be doing that. You'll be rolling that hill of repentance or rolling that rock of repentance up that hill your whole life, and it will keep going down. So that's a lifelong calling to repent of sin. And of course, you will have sins, even grave sins that go unrepented of in your life. But Jesus sits at the table with those who have unrepentant sins. He welcomes them. He goes into their houses, but then he calls them to repent. He calls them to his table, and then he calls them to repent. He knows your sins are many, and he calls you to repent, but he calls you in an equal spirit with the wealthy, the poor, men and women, slave and free. He calls us all to his table. Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence or with boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So remember this structure, right? First, you got it wrong because of how you're treating the body of Christ, the poor and the rich, then the institution of communion, and then don't drink it in an unworthy manner. If you have understood that, you have understood something that the church has been getting wrong for about seven or 800 years across most of the denominations in the world. So before we take communion, let me read the institution of it one more time and think just a bit through it, and then we'll celebrate communion together. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's important to know that when Jesus is breaking the bread and giving the wine, he has not died yet on the cross. That comes 12 hours later. So he's giving the bread. It's not his flesh. The, blood is, the, the wine is not his blood. He's saying, this is a symbol of what I'm about to do in a half of a day. And in the same way, we, we recognize this as a symbol. Communion is a symbol of what Jesus did on the cross. Just like it was a symbol at its first usage, it's a symbol now. He says, uh, in the same way, 
After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So in Jeremiah, I forget if it's 31 or 33, I think it's 31, there's this famous Old Testament prophecy when God says that there is a day that is coming when I will give my people a new covenant, right? And I will be in their hearts and they will each teach one another and I will be with them. There will be a new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews jumps in on this and says, the fact that they were prophesying a new covenant is clear. It means that the first one, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was not enough. It was always understood that that would be sort of a, uh, Paul calls it a pedagogue, sort of a tutor. It's a, it's, a, it's a tutor who helps lead the student to school. It's, it's good for a time, but eventually that student grows up and becomes an adult man or woman. And so the law was good. It was this pedagogue. It, it helped you along. But there is a time that's coming when the new covenant, the fullness will come. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know how the Lord said that the Lord would bring a new covenant? He doesn't say the Lord has brought a new covenant. He says, this is my new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. So here Jesus is saying, we're waiting for Yahweh to bring a new covenant. Well, guess what? My new covenant is here. The new covenant in my blood is here. He's clearly relating himself with Yahweh and saying, the covenant is here. And then he says, for whenever, whenever, this is Paul saying, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is why we take communion. And it's so exciting to think before Paul was even a Christian, people were doing this. Before Paul even had heard the call on the Damascus road, people were breaking bread and drinking wine and celebrating. So all across 2000 years of history, across uh, countries you will never visit, languages you will never know, people not anything like you have been doing this exact thing and celebrating together. And we will go and be together one day with them in heaven. And there will be thousands and thousands of languages all crying out, Hosanna in the highest, and we will be there with them, hopefully understanding by then what, what everyone's saying. I just think it's so special to join in this together. So with that, uh, we're going to uh, break into communion here uh, to partake. All right. Thanks. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.